1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder.
2: History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today.
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got something a little bit different for you today. Zach, on presenting duties and I'm joined by Beth. Beth, how are you doing?
2: I'm good, Zach. I don't think we've done one of these yet together, us two. Which, considering we are history siblings, this is a a travesty.
3: It is, it is. But I think it's probably because up until now, Alex hasn't trusted us not to just dissolve into fits of giggles. But we're doing (laughs) something that's it's cute rather than giggly which is why you're an ideal person to to have on this as our kind of resident history expert and purveyor of all things cuteness. So we're looking today at the history of dogs specifically lap dogs in the 19th century. Introduce our guest for us. Yeah
2: so as as Zach has said cute giggly fun this just sounds wonderful and I'm really really excited for this one. So we're joined by Dr Stephanie Howard-Smith who is a member of the Pet Histories and Wellbeing Project at the Royal Holloway and she's a research associate in the Centre for 18th Century Studies at York as well um, and she wrote her PhD on lap dogs and their place in 18th century culture and has written articles on attempts to control rabies out breaks in mid-18th century London and the trade of porcelain pugs in the 18th century which just sounds absolutely fascinating. I'd never thought about the trade of porcelain pugs before but welcome Stephanie.
4: Hi yeah thanks for thanks for having me on.
3: Shall we start with the absolute basics for this one because I'm not sure most people have really thought through the role of dogs in history much beyond kind of working dogs which isn't so much what we're going to look at today. So what's the traditional perception of the role of the dog in the family and when do we start to see lap dogs particularly becoming a big part of the family unit?
4: So lots of people when it comes to dog history tend to concentrate on the Victorian period and if you think about that idea of the family dog in your head It's something like a a landseer painting of like a Victorian family, all the kids and the dogs there and everyone's getting on very well. And there are lots of changes that happen in pet keeping culture in the Victorian period. Um, Not least you've got kind of like the development of the pedigree dog, all that kind of stuff's going on, but there's a much longer history of keeping dogs companionship. I think one of the problems is that sometimes it's quite difficult to separate companionship out from other tasks. Um, So, just because you go hunting with a dog doesn't mean your dog's not a, a companion in some other way. Um, and you have Roman dog burials where there's evidence of dog sacrifice. But then that's not to say that those dogs weren't loved before someone like, rang their neck. It's it's complicated. Um, and relationships with companion dogs are really specific to time and place. So the West is only one place where dog keeping has emerged as a practice um and research only focuses on dogs in the west my research does too but there are different kind of ways of doing this um so in in south america um there's a, a tradition of keeping i don't know how to pronounce it but egg which are basically like a uh, uh, pets you adopt it Birth and you kind of keep them with the, in the family. They can be dogs, they can be anything, uh, but they're they're raised in the family. In the Pacific, dogs were kept and raised in the family. Sometimes fed breast milk, but ultimately killed for their meat. Uh, China and Japan have their own traditions of, of dog keeping, which are I think particularly China. There's not very much scholarship on them. Um, yeah, so there's a really long history about it. But going back to the West, so the Roman periods when you start seeing lots of little companion dogs being kept, they tend to have names that we'd recognise now, things like fluffy, fly, pearl, names that you'd kind of give your dog today if you you had one. Uh, And it's basically what you expect to see, they're women's dogs or children's dogs. People talk about how lovely they are and how much they love them, but also how yappy and annoying they are too. So there's a really, really long history of of keeping lap dogs. And it stretches from that point on into the medieval period, um, where they're women's pets and the clergyman's pets. Uh, right up through the early modern period, where you have uh, people talking about puppies—that's the name for the lap dogs—then puppies, uh, and again, it's it's, but it's lots of kind of stereotypes we have with lap dogs now. They're little dogs. Women keep them. They bark. They're annoying. Women spend more attention on their dogs than they would otherwise. Uh, and then in the mid 17th century, suddenly people start using the word lap dog to describe these dogs, and that's where everything really picks off, and, and especially in terms of criticism too.
3: I can absolutely imagine that Beth would call her dog fluffy, even if it wasn't fluffy. You should just call it fluffy for the sake of it. I'm curious about what you say about the association with women, though. Is this a kind of is there kind of tropes about gender tied in with all of this? Or should a man, inverted commas, have a certain type of dog? And if you have other types of do- other breeds of dog, then you're less masculine.
4: This was definitely 100 the case in the 18th century, uh, where there was a really set idea about the kind of pets that were appropriate for each kind of person to have. Um, and lap dogs are very much a woman's pet, and not necessarily a good woman's pet. Um, I think the ideal period to have one was maybe if you're a young girl, because they're kind of seen as practice for motherhood, and they kind of you can nurture it and look after it. Uh, but you don't want to have one for too long, or get, pay it too much attention, because that means maybe you're not spending as much attention on. Your husband and your kids, as you should be on a dog. Um, yes, absolutely. Women's pets associated with um, elite, wealthy women, fashionable women. And if you did have a dog and you're a man, uh, a lap dog and you're a man, that that was problematic um, and associate because they were so closely associated with women. Um, all kinds of stereotypes come. About. I think you still see that even today. These are things that have we still we still have these weird stereotypes about small dogs, despite the fact that practically these days not different at all from other dogs like most people keep rottweilers or alsatians or border collies or spaniels and they're not they're not going to go out and do the jobs those dogs are meant to do they're, they're pet dogs but we still have a weird thing about dogs that are historically bred for companionship and were and a little and yeah a
2: whole load of weird ideas attached to that I really love what you said just about them, like having small girls having lap dogs as like pretend babies. It's like having a, a baby doll now, I suppose, isn't it? It's like that continuation of that, I suppose. Um, so your research really is really quite fascinating. Um, there's so much that you can talk about when you know it's a topic that I can't, I wouldn't be able to tell you anything about. But there's so much when you start to get into it. So let's start with some of your your work on the efforts about controlling rabies, the outbreaks in London in 1760. Um, there was a call, wasn't there, in, in response to the outbreak, which is not unusual, but this one's different. Why is why is it different to the others? So just the background, I think it's really easy
4: to forget that rabies is ever a problem in, in Britain because it hasn't been for hundreds of years and it's easy to assume that it was never a problem. Um, so... Rabies was endemic in Britain until the early 20th century, and there are sporadic outbreaks. Uh, and, like you said, usually the way of dealing with this was culling, because until um, Pasteur just invented the rabies vaccine, there was no reliable way of controlling it at all. Um, the best you could do was cauterize your wound and hope that you wouldn't get affected. But obviously, if you did get infected, uh, you'd have the worst death imaginable. Um, so, it's something you really want to avoid. And so, it makes sense that in the face of a a disease like that, you would do everything possible to avoid it, firstly infecting livestock, um, because that's an economic problem and also infecting people, um, because that's a big problem. So, but what happens in the 1760 outbreak is that the cull starts unofficially. It's something that local people want to to happen so, it's a kind of grassroots thing. And then the City of London's Common Council declare a coal in late August, um, which is all going totally normally. But suddenly, in the days after the coal was declared, you get a massive outpouring of, of letters opposing the coal to London newspapers and also people writing to their friends about it. Um, and they're critic suddenly, whereas in the past, coal's happened, it was kind of an accepted part of life, now there's a problem with it. Um, so some of the things I say are kind of logical criticisms of the Cole, like basically it's fake news, that there's not a rabies problem um, and it's all being kind of whipped up by the newspapers. And this seems to be the case a bit because the newspapers would have published retractions for various claims. Um, secondly, they would make kind of this really old argument that you still hear today, that if someone's willing to violently beat an animal to death, they might hurt humans down the line too. Uh, and that's a kind of a, and a really old idea. But what's totally new really in the 1760 cull are all the people being who write in and say, Dogs are good, why do you want to call why do you want to why do you want to kill dogs? We love them. They they do all this stuff for us. And sometimes it's it's tasks like labour and shepherding and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it's also they they keep us company, that our lives wouldn't be the same without them and we owe them something. And you also see kind of a continuation of that just Just like people say, you know, some humans are bad. Does that mean we should kill all humans? And this kind of really weird, extreme logic, um, which kind of is more common today, but wasn't really common at the time. Um, And people would talk about the cull in terms of it being a murder of dogs. And that's, murder is usually a legal term that's being applied to humans, dogs, pets, uh, and make really weird comparisons. So for instance, people would often compare the coal uh, to the sort of innocence the mayor of London was compared to King Herod and people make comparisons between the colors and Native Americans and this is during a, the French and Indian War um, so they're kind of going for these kind of the most extreme examples of savagery they can think of I say they in inverted commas um, when when they're trying to oppose the coal uh, so yeah suddenly dogs are good people are bad and we need to be protecting in terms of the, what the, the opponents of the card are saying. Our best friends, the dog, uh, compared to problematic humans.
3: Why now, though? I mean, what's what's so different in 1760? Is this kind of Age of Enlightenment thinking? Are people thinking differently about their relationship with nature? Is it just that dogs have become a much more central part of the family unit by this point than they had been previously? What what's what's new here? To create this new response
4: I think it's a combination of all those things like at the end of the 18th century beginning the 19th century you see the development of the animal welfare movement in the 1820s you see things like the RSPCA being founded I think all this stuff is a preamble to that I think there are I think one of the biggest influences on this movement, generally, is the idea of sentimentality and sensibility. The idea that, in expressing emotion, you kind of demonstrate your superior feeling. Uh, the idea that, to be a, a good human, you need to be a kind human, and kind, especially to people and animals who are more vulnerable than you are. And I think the colour is one very easy way to demonstrate that. You can come up with these kind of overwrought expressions of oh god, the streets full of dog's blood, how awful it is it is it, it makes me cry thinking about it, that kind of that kind of emotion. Um so I think it's it's this this moment, the mid-18th century is at the juncture of an older way of thinking about animals, not I don't want to generalize here, but a kind of utilitarian way of thinking about animals and a kind of a preamble to a 19th century. Victorian, sentimental, affectionate relationship with, with dogs in particular.
0: Uh, let's,
3: I mean, this is really interesting, but I, I'm conscious that there are lots of things that we, we need to talk about here because there are so many interesting topics within it. We mentioned, or Beth mentioned at the start about your work on the trait in porcelain models of dogs. Now, I don't want to spoil it for people, but when I read your conclusions, it really turned some ideas on their head for me. I mean, I was kind of literally kind of sitting back scratching my head a little bit. So talk us through what you found out in terms of these completely wrong associations that we have and about kind of the the notions of pug popularity that are embedded in your study.
4: So pugs uh, were a really popular variety of lap dog in the 18th century they're one of these dogs that kind of comes in 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 booms of popularity just like there was 10 years ago where everyone suddenly was all over pugs it was like that in the early 18th century um, and one of the things that's also different compared to earlier periods is that this is the, the period of the consumer society uh, and this, the pug was really a multimedia sensation. This is the first time a dog became a multimedia sensation. The reason that happened uh, is because the Meissen factory uh, outside Dresden, uh, which was the first place where hard-paced porcelain was discovered in Europe after a really long and protracted period trying to work out the, the way to make it, uh, began producing porcelain pug models. This is largely because they had a, a patron of sorts, uh, the Gruff von who loved pugs. He had, he had them and he it was a way to kind of carry fame with him. They'd make these little pug porcelain models up. And because Meissen was so prestigious itself, when they went to other places in Europe, people, they kind of crossed borders. Uh, local porcelain factories uh, would begin making them themselves. Um, so when I started looking at this, I, one of the kind of things I expected to see would be a, an association between China and the porcelain pug, because China also made copies of these porcelain pugs uh and even if you don't know much about dogs you probably know that pugs are from china um but as i researched this it turned out this wasn't the case at all in the 18th century they were very much thought of as a dutch dog uh maybe from if you want to push it maybe from like the low countries generally or germany or denmark but they're a northern european dog uh and that the association with china came much later probably because of the porcelain trade and was so effective and popular um But there's a historian, Chima Yang, who's looked at um, people writing about porcelain pugs in the 19th century. And she notes the way that um, the pug, the way people talked about it, the Victorians talked about it, was really racialised. And it continues to be to this day. Um, Really quite disturbing connections uh, made between pugs and the place they supposedly come from, but actually don't come from. But I think it's one of the interesting ways that dog history can... Be more relevant because what i noticed is that lots of scientists were basing their their kind of historical context for the genome studies off breed books written in the 19th century early 20th century which don't really use sources properly i kind of make spurious claims without really backing them up but because this was written in the books and they've been the claims were repeated 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 i i emailed a scientist and he said he just had no clue that there was that pugs could be from anywhere else other than China, um, so this is one of the ways that p- that dog history maybe has slightly wider implications apart from the fact that lots of people live with dogs and they mean a lot to us in our our personal lives. But um, yeah, so pugs not where you came, well, not probably not where you thought they came from, and extremely, extremely popular in the 18th century until they weren't, and they almost went extinct for a bit in Britain, and they came back up again, and they go away again, they come back up again.
2: And so on and so forth. Is that almost like, it almost sounds like we say they come in and out of fashion, as it were. It it is almost like a trend, isn't it? Rather than being a dog, it's the trend of having a pug rather than having a dog, if if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I think,
4: and this is something that makes me kind of comfortable even today. We don't like to think about dogs being accessories or trends because they mean so much to us. But they are. And they have been for a really long time i think the 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 point where people today and in the 8th century find it disturbing is at what point it's just a fashion statement mm.
1: uh
4: and it absolutely was for lots of people you have to have the in dog at some points in the 8th century it's a pug um later might be a newfoundland it might be a pomeranian but they come in and out of fashion and um so th- not only are they fashion statements in themselves they're quite, but they're, they're you can also they're meta luxuries because Here's a luxury thing: a pug or another kind of lap dog. And you can also give it clothes, which people did. You can give it cushions, which people did. Uh, you can feed it tea, give it snuff, um, feed it roasted meats. All this kind sorry, of sorry,
3: hang on. Give a dog snuff.
4: Yes, there was a pug. Apparently, had a vitiated taste for snuff and if you'd hold your snuff box open this dog would come up and sniff it oh, no. but I don't know how that happened I, obviously I just how how do you come to the point where you let your dog <laughs> do that but yeah made the newspaper oh,
3: my I've God. heard some ridiculous things in my them. time
4: yeah
3: I mean people you know feeding their dogs venison and, and you have situations where dogs are better clothed and better fed than their owners ever are and they're almost kind of bankrupting themselves because of the money they're pouring into their dog. But to give your dog drugs, which is fundamentally what I'd, snuff I'd is,
2: to, I'd have loved to see that pug. Like, would it have been because pugs are quite like energetic dogs anyway, aren't they? Could you imagine be like um, being like it was on speed or something? It would just be completely flying all over the place. I'd I'd, I'd pay I'd pay good money to see that. <laughs>
3: see, Beth isn't concerned about the welfare of poor snuff infused dog. She just wants to see it chasing its tail, like it the name. It's the
2: kind of it's the kind of thing you see on like social media, isn't it? It's like wasn't it that video, oddly enough, of a pug ten years ago where he was he just he was like all floppy all over the place and he couldn't run in a straight line. And it's the spectacle of it, I suppose, isn't it? Spectacle is 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 a big thing for humans isn't it we like a bit of spectacle yeah
4: and like <laughs> if, if you were if you were out for a fun evening in sad as well as in the 18th century one of the things you could go and see was a troupe of dancing dogs and they danced yeah exactly it's exactly the same thing it's like pudsy from britain's got talent but you know reliably almost they always always all, all the time uh, and they kind of react little masquerades and they perform pantomimes and you as well as dancing so there's a fun evening out for, for all the family the dancing pug the dancing dog troop um yeah so there i don't know dark- if they were ever given snuff though
3: <laughs> there is a darker side though isn't there in the in the kind of world of dog entertainment which is pitting dogs against dogs mm. um in in fights and, and then gambling on the outcome
4: yeah absolutely um and dog fighting was very popular in the 18th century and it continues to be so in the 19th century um although interestingly uh what one of the things I found is that sometimes the the dog doctor would who would attend to the fighting dogs in the ring would also attend to the dogs. This is in the nineteenth century now would also attend to the dogs in Mayfair uh, when they were poorly too. So there was well, sometimes the worlds between, Dog fighting and high, high, high living society dogs did cross over, and to a certain extent, the pedigree dog world is, in some ways, an outcome of, of that. Uh, originally, the first dog shows were really popular with the kind of London's working class, rather, and then only later it became a, a more of a, a high.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Society, middling sort, activity. Wow, I didn't know that.
3: So the kind of the... There are certain words I'm deliberately trying to avoid here so it's not to offend people. The kind of um certain class of individual who takes a profound interest in the length of a dog's snout and and all these other things that folks care about in in the the discussions of pedigree, etc. So that was initially a working class thing.
4: Sort of. Yeah. So in the 18th century, you do have people breeding their dogs together. And being quite careful about it, and from the elite here, they, you know, you'd write, and be like, "Oh, Fluffy is looking very lovely." You know what? She looks just like my dog Adonis. Oh, their puppies would be so cute. We should definitely get them together and make this a reality. And the same with hunting dogs. Uh, people were very careful. There are all these letters where dogs on heat get out, and then they worry that they've mated with the mongrel from down the road. So people were careful about it. But yet, yeah, that very nineteenth century. Read standards, you know, how long is your dog whiskers kind of thing does have roots in these first early dog shows, which were held largely in London pubs in the East End and Elephant
2: Castle and places places like that. So, yeah.
1: Oh.
2: But again, that's just, I would never even have thought that it went that far back. And Yeah, wow, just, it's just amazing. Um, and Ste- Stephanie, a lot of your work has been on this concept of lap dogs and, and where they came from and uh, what why focus on the dog first of all what what brought you to that I suppose that area of study?
4: So the first thing that, that kind of drew me in is I I, I, I like dogs I was brought up around dogs and about the time I started an MA in 18th century studies, my family got a pug um, so in some ways there's an embodied history there because I came more aware of it's a different way of being with dogs. Like they're always around you, they sleep on you all the time, they're very, they're very it's very kind of intense relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, also of all the stereotypes people had about them. So you like, having comments about handbag dogs and all that kind of stuff. So there there are good creatures you made at Pugs. So I want to point this out, they are unhealthy and there's a, a conversation that could be had about that. But also just, yeah, things that had nothing to do with that, like yeah. oh you've got a handbag dog that's a step down from the Labrador. that kind of stuff so I became more aware of that from that point of view also when I was doing the research beforehand I was seeing all these breed books and they come with like if you get a like you know the pugs a, a, you know the dummy's guide to pugs it'll have a bit of history in the beginning and I'm reading it thinking well oh, this seems a bit a bit off I should really look into this so that's how it kind of started in a not very professional way at all and yeah so that's that was the, the interest initially but they're a really interesting subject for study because they're the first dogs that have really just kept for companionship and you can tell when someone's talking about a lap dog is that the chances are it's not going to be performing other any other functions so that makes it different from other dogs um so within the household it's got a different function it's allowed in different places it's given different food like i said it's given snuff in very exceptional circumstances um people have a different relationship with them um And at the same time, because of that, the discourse around them is very different to other dogs. Like, whereas other dogs are good and noble and loyal, people write about lap dogs, and even in natural history books in the 18th century, in very... I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, Negative ways. So, pugs pugs are selfish, lap dogs are sneaky, they're manipulative. People use really, um, yeah, intense language to to describe them. Um, So... So there's a sense that lab dogs are different and lesser to other dogs. And the combination of these things together makes lab dogs in the industry a really interesting way for people to talk about other people, a really easy way to talk about things like animal sentience and morality and luxury and women and how much kindness you should reasonably give an animal at a time when people are still kind of working out what kindness to animals means in society generally.
3: Well, let's dig into that then. You know, what kind of processes, what responses, I guess, do people have to this growing adoption of these dogs into the home, because there is, uh, well, I, I don't know, I mean, I was about to say, well, there is a kind of a culture shift. I'm not totally sure that that's a fair comment to make, because I'm thinking of um, the, the King Charles Spaniel, which is not really a, a working dog. It's a dog that's bred to, in my opinion, just look absolutely adorable. You know, mini Spaniel, how can you not love it? Uh, but we're, we're we're getting off topic very rapidly. Take Zach away from discussion of Spaniels. How <laughs> old are... People respond to this. Is it something that you know it's been happening anyway, or is there sort of an explosion that then creates a counter reaction to this em- embracing of the dog in the home?
4: So you're absolutely right that it wasn't a totally new sensation um, on the the spaniel side of things. Uh, it's really important to note that Charles II's uh, spaniels gave birth in his bed and would whelp their puppies in his bed. And when he comes over, when he lands um, for his restoration, uh, Pepys is there uh, and Pepys notes that the, the dog the bo- the dog the king brought with him, quote unquote, shat the boat. So the dogs are like an omnipresent part. yeah, obviously dogs are really important to, to, king, to king Charles. Um,
3: That's with
4: I know, isn't it? It's great. And also Peeps is also weird about his own bitch. He gets very jealous of it when he begins mating with other dogs, which is a whole other thing. Oh, um, that's, that's again you know, very Peeps. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so I think with the 18th century, one of the one of the differences maybe is kind of the, the rising power of the middling sort, who find the whole black dog thing a bit gross and weird and a, a waste of money. Um, so what makes the 18th century different? think is the explosion of print culture and material and, and literary culture so if more people are writing more stuff and more different kinds of people are writing those kinds of things you'll have this a different different perspective on, on things like that and like the criticism is really ramped up um I mean people are really really uncomfortable with these dogs um so as much as some people love them and gave them all these special privileges on the other hand you have people talking about them in terms of decadence. You know, there are all these poems written about about women who keep their dogs in the bed uh, rather than their husbands. If you've read Mansfield Park, uh, you'll know that Lady Bertram has a pug, which she loves more than her own children. Uh, And these kind of lapdog-owning neglectful mothers are everywhere in 18th century fiction. Um, So there's a sense that for people who aren't bands of them, the lapdog is kind of turning up the natural order of things. It's usurping children's place in the home. Um, It's, it's distracting people from their natural roles. Um, If I know you're you're into your Napoleonic history, Um, there's a story. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, here we go. This is one of my favorite lapdog anecdotes. So Josephine de Beauharnais uh, had a pug called Fortuné. Yeah. And supposedly, uh, On the wedding night he asked her to 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 get the dog off the bed and she was like well no he's been here the whole time so you're just gonna have to share uh and so napoleon begins to get in bed and fortune bites him Uh, i
3: remember this story now yes
4: (laughs) yeah um so there's, there's an epilogue to this story uh, which is that, sadly, Fortuny dies uh, while Napoleon's on tour in Italy. Uh, the cook's son's dog kills him. The dog's picking fights with everyone, and obviously it's a pug, so it can't defend itself properly. Um, so the cook's dog kills Fortuné. And there's a story that a few days later, the Napoleon's walking around, and, and the cook the cook's saying, it's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, I can't believe my dog killed your dog. And Napoleon's like, oh, don't sweat it. And you know what? Josephine's got another dog now so if you could bring your dog around because I actually don't like this one (gasps) uh, yeah so
3: so just to reiterate for the sake of you know I mean I I have a habit of bashing Napoleon he is now the heartless person who doesn't care about other dogs being killed and actively encourages the death of his wife's pets so there you go yet another Um... reason to hate Napoleon
0: Who'd have
2: thought it, Isaac? Who'd have thought that Napoleon was a horrible person? Oh, really?
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> who says um, that you can't I'm bend shocking. history? I'm
2: <laughs>
4: <shocking>. <laughs> but it's it's the story. It originally comes from uh, one of Napoleon's Napoleon's friends, who we know did like dogs, because he put in a, a a birth announcement into one of the Paris newspapers to announce that his dog had had puppies, but he didn't know. Said he was a dog, so. That really confused everyone for a bit. But yeah, so there you go. Napoleon, noted pug hater. Uh, if you need another reason Heartless like
3: individual. It. Heartless... <laughs> depra- we, we really need to get off this, otherwise I'll go off onto a rant yeah, about yeah, Napoleon. Stop it, Zach.
2: Shush. No, stop.
3: <laughs> um, Why are you treating me like a dog now? <laughs>
2: it's too easy. <laughs> um, right, back onto... Right, Zach, be sensible. Stop it. Um, so these perceptions that you you talked about and as you said they're not actually unheard of even today are they these perceptions of you know giving animals human characteristics and being selfish in this um how do these perceptions from the 18th century co- translate into into the present day we do we still see the echoes of it in the same way that would have happened during the 18th century i think in lots of ways you do like
4: if you close your eyes and someone and you imagined a small fluffy white dog and you're told to imagine it's only you'd probably assume they're a woman um like even though there's no reason to assume that anymore um that's also true of cats maybe to a certain extent which is also weird and also has roots in the 18th century uh, and going back um yeah so absolutely first some, we have these, these stereotypes that lap dogs are women's pets despite like I said not having a real particularly different role compared to other dogs is still really prevalent. Um, and it same way, society still makes assumptions about why a man might want to own a small fluffy dog, which are wrong. And it's still rooted in these really old ideas about proper dogs being big and useful and good and little dogs being manipulative and, and fawning, which is weird because I don't think they're particularly fawning, but that, there you go. Um, yeah. I think also if you think in films like if a dog and if little dogs die more frequently than big dogs do and when they do it's usually in comic violence in the way that you wouldn't really do for a big dog um so I think yeah, these ideas are, ev- are still everywhere also people seem to act as if spending money on a dog's knee and it's not obviously it was just for the elite in the 18th century um but like you said you know the idea that Today, are dogs here looked after better than people was the case in the eighteenth century, and people like to kind of write stories about social decadence and in, into it. like you know, oh god, our whole society is going down the drain because someone bought fufu uh, a you know a luxury coat or something like that. When we've been doing it for a really, really, really long time, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it doesn't mean that society is going to crumble at any given moment. Uh, although. Jamie Bentham writes a letter to his brother where basically he compares the Earl of Carlisle uh, writing a epitaph for his dog. Uh, and he, said he compares it to you know Gibbon writing about the end of Rome. He says it's just social decadence. So yeah, there's a really, really long history about that, about that. And yeah, spending money on dogs rather than on people and being uncomfortable about it. So yeah, absolutely. We still, we still have these weird really outdated ideas about what dogs are appropriate for different people
3: so i was going to ask is is there sort of other echoes of antiquity within those perceptions you know is there this idea that if you go back in history then dogs have been bred for for hunting for war um and then in time for protective purposes so to protect livestock uh, and, and and then to herd livestock in, in the form of dogs. but you kind of Tapped into that already. The other thing I want to ask, and perhaps we'll deal with this in a moment, is dog fashion. You've got to tell us what is in in the 18th century in terms of dressing up your dog. So take that in whatever order you want to, but we've got to have answers to that.
4: Okay, dog fashion first. Um, so uh, Lady Penryn, who was the wife of Lord Penryn, who uh, owned Penryn Castle in Wales, also um, a slave owner, a really anti-abolition anti-ending slave trade person. Um, she had a pack of pugs again. And there are stories about them going out into Groves and uh, Square dressed in matching red cloaks with little bonnets on them. So <laughs> that's up there, cloaks and bonnets uh, in crimson dye. Uh, in terms of other kinds of, of fashions, I mean if you, the thing to really have if you can afford it is a dog bed, especially if you're living in France. Um, you can get really amazing dog beds. There's one that the master joiner made for Marie Antoinette. It's in the Met. It's got a a detachable roof. Just, I don't know why, you might want to see what your dog's doing inside this little miniature kennel. I don't know. Others had a seat on top, so you could sit on top. It's like a kind of multifunctional piece of furniture. Um, There's also, yeah, so I think furniture up there. Clothes, you want a, a kind of cloaked bonnet Deal ideally in a really bright colour, uh, and collars definitely collars, um, preferably Moroccan leather. Uh, the ones in mice and pugs always have bells on the back, which I quite I quite like personally.
2: Oh, this is very swish. All I can think of though now is the the pu- ugly. Oddly enough, because he is a lap dog, he the pug in Pocahontas. Per Percy,
4: Percy, oh. I, I so I feel oh, yeah. really Yeah, I and if you think about it, Percy's a awful dog to begin with yeah because he's so pampered, he has that little carousel with the bones on it I mean I wish that existed that'd be really cool um but yeah so I personally and I think an anachronistic pug there a uh, bit early really but we we'll, yeah. I- I'll take it um also there's there's also pugs in one of the hobbit films I just can't understand why they're a cast there if it's supposed to be like a kind of medieval, like yeah, if, I can't. Anyway, it's if, if, if in the floating town. I don't know why they're there. It really bothers me. Um, yeah, that's that was a total um, segue into absolute nothingness there. But yeah, so no yeah, worries. yeah, no
3: worries. We do this all the time on this. All History. the time. I mean, I mean a credit to Beth for managing to shoehorn a Disney film into this conversation. <laughs> she does it every single time. Incredible. <laughs> I now need to go and rewatch the Desolation oh, of Smoke in order to spot hey, the these, these pugs. But yes, yeah, um, back to, to the, the historical side of things, the antiquity link or, or otherwise, to what extent is, is, am I just talking rubbish when I kind of say, is there a kind of hang up about working dogs and, and the function that, you know, dogs are bred for a purpose originally um, by yeah. humans. And, and then that translates into the prejudices that we see later on.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely a part of it. I don't know if you've seen that meme uh, where it's a wolf and the wolf's being like, oh, I'm really hungry, there's a fire, oh, they've got some meat, what's the worst that could happen if I go over there? And then the ember's always a pug wearing a birthday hat. (laughs) Um, So I think, like, this is exactly what people were worried about in the 18th century as well, to a certain extent. Pugs weren't as deformed then as they are now, but they were still considered to be, um, you know, a bit deformed. Uh, And people would talk about, some of the changes in dogs in terms of decadence, like uh, Mary Wollstonecraft didn't like dogs with pendulous ears. She thought it was a sign of domestic servitude. Um, So I think absolutely, I think particularly now we're really, sometimes there's a good reason to worry about what we've done to dogs uh, in the terms of extreme breed confirmation. Uh, But yeah, I think, yeah, this kind of misty-eyed idea of a past with a hunting dog and this is what dogs are supposed to be, even if most people don't go hunting with their dogs maybe like the idea that they could do, uh, which I think maybe it was a kind of macho I don't know, impulse to be considered there.
3: Well they're still doing it at this time aren't they? I mean I'm thinking, sorry the Napoleonic War reference incoming, um, about Wellington he has a pack of hounds with him sent out to um, Spain where he's, he's commanding the British armies for the purpose of giving him entertainment and they chase down hares and, and Wellington's obsessed with hunting, you know that he can See, there's a famous anecdote about how he's deep in conversation with one of his um, subordinate generals and he sees uh, a pack of hounds chasing a hare, completely stops talking to the, the guy that he's in conversation with, lets out this cheer, rides off for about an hour following these, these hounds as they try and chase down this hare and then calmly goes back and finds the, the guy who's gone off to other business continues his conversation so what I'm getting at is that, that you know you've still you've got the two happening in conjunction with one another during this period.
4: Yeah absolutely yeah so hunting was super popular all kinds of hunting like like fox hunting in particular i think yeah exactly so the kind of fox hunting is the martial ideal it's practice for war in a certain respect, and we know that men found it very much tied to the idea of masculinity um so yeah that makes sense that's one of the reasons that you know if you don't have a dog that can't do that obviously that is therefore coding as unmasculine and is therefore feminine and that's weird in itself but yeah absolutely so hunting super popular uh, george washington was also a very keen huntsman one of his dogs is called sweet lips um unusual choice for a dog name. I don't think I'd want to call that out in a park. Um, but you know <laughs> you get some if anyone thinks my dog I
3: So you'd get some odd looks, wouldn't you, if you? You definitely would.
4: Yeah there are some quite weird uh 18th century dog names. I think that's probably the weirdest one of them. Yeah, so yeah exactly. So hunting... so dogs are really important to both elite men and elite women in this period, but in very different ways. So I mean the the equivalent of the the dog bonnet cloak setup would be the kennels of Goodwood, which were absolutely massive, and people were also quite disturbed about how much money had been spent on these, you know, neo Palladian kennels with different rooms, different places people sleep in, multiple packs. So yeah, so there were. I think that's the other thing. Men were spending their money on dogs too, but because it was hunting therefore it has kind of some kind of moral not benefit because I think um Smith writes about hunting dogs being as an example of of not good spending because you don't get the money back in any return it's just basically you're throwing your money down a dog's throat essentially if you're keeping a pack of dogs that don't have any value in the long run I think that's one of the reasons that obviously we don't have this separation anymore, but in the 18th century, there's a sense that the ideal dog for a man is a dog you can go hunting with and it can do things for you. Um, And it's your companion in the field. Maybe it can come into your home sometimes and all the time. Um, But yeah, so dogs are a big part of of gender display for both men and women uh, in quite different ways. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why people got really quite stressed out when men had small dogs rather than big dogs. It was considered a bit weird. Um, in America, General Charles Lee had a, a Pomeranian dog called Spado or Spado, and uh, it went missing, and people were very mean to him about it for how much he liked his little dog. So people really had set ideas about what dogs were acceptable for which people, and if you strayed outside those those gender lines, you'd be ripped apart for the, the doing it.
3: It's interesting what you say there about wasted money as well, even in relation to hunting dogs which supposedly have a purpose but then perhaps in some people's views don't have a purpose and and so if you're not spending your money on on dogs then what would they rather that you were spending your money on is it kind of you know you should be spending money on charitable causes is it that it should be invested to um, generate more wealth what's the the rationale that's going on there that you can't spend your own money how you want to
4: i think there's a, a certain question about taste in all of this I think, and the idea that there's something really ostentatious about spending your money on something that's just there for for display, as people see it, and giving it things it doesn't necessarily need on top of that. I think there's a, a thing about child causes that is important, um, because in some of these kind of moralising works for children, there's often... There's the the bad lapdog owning woman with her pack of lapdogs and her parrot and her monkey uh, who doesn't do any charitable work in the community uh, and makes her servants do she doesn't pay her servants very well makes them do loads of unnecessary work compared to the the good mother who demonstrates the right way to so you you're nice to local birds and you're nice with your dog um, and you go out and do good deeds to the community so I think charitable causes and I think it's just I think it's not the question of what you're spending money; it's what you look like you're spending your money on. uh, Lots of the time, I don't know what the ideal thing would be. Maybe a nice, tasteful British-made product. I don't. I'm not sure. In in short, I think. I think often there's not even a a suggestion of what you should be spending your money on. I think that I know there's one tract written about about dog food. It's not just about dog food, but dog food comes into it. And basically he, he calculates how much it costs to feed every dog like his wife feeds their her lap dog. Uh, and his point is very much that by taking away all the best bits of meat, you're raising the prices on them and therefore making it harder for less wealthy people to be able to afford them.
2: So we've already touched a little bit on it, Stephanie, about how you got into this topic. Um, and I'm really curious about how you work something like this, how- how you get something out of it what you move forward with it so what are you going to be doing putting all of this together What are you? what's your next steps do you think with all of these uh, with all this wonderful information of dogs and pugs and just wonderful stuff
4: <laughs> with these sort of lap dogs uh, I'd really like to do a, a kind of a, a book for a, a popular readership about, about them just because they're really interesting they've been around for a really long time uh, and there's some really great stories there um, but I think one of the things you need to do with the history of dogs is that it has to be a joint cultural social history of dogs I think with dogs so much of how we think and talk about them is is from each other uh, even if you have no experience with them they're everywhere in our culture and they have been for the, the entire modern period um, so you can't divorce books about dogs and films about dogs and poems about dogs and stories about dogs from our experiences of having dogs just because you know even when you start when you're a very small child they're they're everywhere in our culture um so that's the joint thing at the same time there's a tendency in, in some kinds of animal studies to just treat the animal as a symbol uh and i think there's a danger of doing that here because dogs are having a dog if you've had a dog it's a multi-sensory experience um like they bark uh, they they poo where you don't want them to poo they mate when you don't want them to mate um they're they're really smelly and they jump on things and they just mess everything up so I think it's also important to keep in mind the dog is a real being with its own behaviors and its own relationships complicated or not with other dogs and people it lives with um and I think yeah there's something really important to keep in mind when talking about any kind of animal it's not just a thing in that exists in our head it's it's a it's a real thing uh, and it meant peace to the people you live with if you're talking about a specific dog that belonged to a specific person. So, but yeah, I think if you think about, and the other thing about the 18th century, which is kind of the period I'm most interested in, is this is one of the first periods where people begin writing uh, novels about and from the perspective of dogs. And um, so the first kind of dog book is by Cervantes. And it's bit, it comes a bit earlier. It's called the Dialogue of the Dogs, and basically, two dogs uh, have, are given the gift of speech for a single night, and they just chat to each other about all kinds of stuff that dogs like talking about. And um, and this gets translated towards the 18th century in Britain. And you also have a book called Pompey the Little, uh, which is about a a Bolognese lapdog called Pompey who's he's brought over to Britain. He kind of circulates throughout 18th century society. Uh, and he gives a kind of window onto all the different owners he lives with. Um, so, I, and it was a really popular book in the 18th century. Um, I, I think you can think about other kind of equivalent things today. If it's like Beverly Hills Chihuahua or something like that, like dogs are everywhere. Uh, and the stuff that is written about them and is still about them does influence people's perceptions of other dogs and the people who have them. So, it has to be a joint social cultural. Thing. And yeah, it's like the material culture. You got your porcelain pugs in the 18th century. You've got your I uh, know pug pajamas now. Your pug cake or your French bulldog cake or whatever. So yeah, has to be a, a a multimedia project.
3: And you've been working on a big AHRC project. I'm always jealous when people have been working on AHRC projects, frankly. But yours is about pets and how their roles have changed in our lives particularly in terms of the awareness of the benefits to pets on our well-being. So tell us a bit about what the project's been working to achieve and the exhibition that you've been putting together.
4: So the project Pet History and Wellbeing, is run out of Holloway, and it's it's led on from an earlier project that also had AHRC funding but I didn't work on called Pets and Family Life, uh, which was all about looking at the Victorian period saying... We know that this is often pinpointed as a point of change in the way we own pet ownership. What does that actually mean for individual families? Uh, how do pets affect family life over, appeared from about 1837 to 1939. Um, so pets, uh, pet, his, pet, his, pet histories and well-beings come out of that. Uh, and what we're doing among other things is, we're working with the Museum of the Home, which has just reopened after a really long redevelopment and also a period closure period uh, period of closure during COVID. Uh, on an exhibition called Pet Life, and what Pet Life is, it's a, an exhibition for families. Uh, and what you'll do, you'll go in, you choose one of four pets, two of which are Victorian, uh, from this earlier Pet uh, Pet and Family Life pro- Pet and Family Life project, and basically you follow its relationship with its owner or guardian or whatever you want to call them within the home uh and tells you a bit about their their life with them um it runs from the 24th of july to the 1st of october and you can book tickets online uh yeah so it's kind of like pets are so central to our concept of home and understanding family life that it makes perfect sense to work the museum of the home on a project on on something like this putting pets back into the home where where they belong
2: just to to round off we were talking offline about the storytelling within this exhibition. So just tell us about one of these stories. Tell us about Starling Bob. <laughs> so like I said, there are four there
4: are four pets you can follow. Two are from um, Professor Jane Hamlet's research. So one is a sky called Ruffy and the other one is this starling called Bob. Um, I think Bob is quite interesting himself in the way that, although pets mean a lot to us, the way pet keeping has changed over the centuries. So pet starlings are a really common pet in Victorian England, um, but now you wouldn't have one because as we know, it's not right to go into nature and take wild animals and tame them and keep them in the house. Um, but we have featured him because his stories are interesting and he, he was very talkative starling and he, liked, he had a kind of sense of mischief um, I think this is one of the maybe the challenges of doing public history for a family audience is that you want to, especially with something like animals, where there are obviously all these commonalities between how we treat our pets now and how people understood their pets then, that how we have very close relationships with them, but also the differences. You don't want to sand off that there are things that we did with animals in the past, 100, 200 years ago, that we wouldn't consider to be acceptable now. Um, and that's and, that, and that's that's history isn't it where you know things change people move on the ideas of what is acceptable change over time uh, and it's really interesting to kind of probe how those where those differences arise and and what you do about them so I, I think we've tried to think about what it would be like for the starling bob um, to see normal starlings outside of the world go about their daily business so we, we've want to represent the story accurately, but also not to undermine the fact that you really shouldn't keep a pet starling in the house and that there are ethical problems in doing so um, without changing the story massively. Uh, And the same thing with the other stories we looked at, Um, you know, you wouldn't let, you wouldn't keep a terrier outside anymore. Um, There is another one we considered doing, but didn't do, uh, is about a woman who lived in Wapping when she was a young child, and she loved her family's pet cats, but the cat kept having babies. This is not in the exhibition. Um, And obviously in the 1920s, if you're a poor family living in a tenement building in Wapping, you know, you can't, you can't spay your cat. And there's not a way you can reasonably go and euthanize those kittens normally. This is really dark, which is why it's it's really complicated. So Mm -hmm. yeah. but this person, this little girl loved loved her adult cat and had really fond memories of cuddling with it. I think this is something if you talk to the older generation about like their, your grandparents, the ideas of what was acceptable, what made you a good pet owner in the 1920s, and 1930s, and 1940s changed. Um, in fact, there's a story called Hilda Keane who's written a lot about uh, pets in the second world war. Uh, and how there are kind of these mass um, euthana- euthanasia of, of pets because they are considered to be detrimental to the water to a certain extent, and it's this period of history that no one really talked about. And she did all histories. It's really yes, yeah, so it's really interesting. Animals are fascinating because they are cute and they are cuddly and they're interesting that way. But I think w- by just approaching the cute and cuddly and not saying more complicated you run into problems i think this is true of things like social media today where you see all those cute animal videos and you look into it there's often quite a disturbing story behind it where they're not showing natural behaviors on a natural situation but because our kind of our human brains are wired to be like oh look at that little slow loris so so cute so adorable we don't really probe the the stuff behind it um and the same with dog history it's cutie cuddly, but there are, there are other things coming off it about how we think about other dogs, how we think about people and um, what's what's appropriate for those people to do or do or not.
3: I think that's a really nice point to end on. Steph, thank yeah. you so much for this. We love doing different stuff on History Hack. And this has absolutely been completely left field. to so what a lot of people uh, expect when we we do history of the 18th century. But it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much. Any chance to talk about old historical dogs, especially ones that meet grizzly ends, (laughs) for no reason. Thank you so much.
1: When our guests
3: join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org